if you are going to start a movement, you would need a message. And if you were going to start a movement, you would need a method, a strategy for how to expand that movement. There would need to be a central message. There would need to be a focused message for clarity, for purpose, so that people would know, are they staying true to the birth of that movement? There are all kind of movements that start today, and they all have hashtags. Everything's got a hashtag that gets to trending and begins a movement, but there was a movement that began over 2,000 years ago that didn't begin with a hashtag. And the message and the method of that movement is centered on a person. We call it the gospel, which just simply means good news. So when you read your Bible and it says the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to Mark or the gospel according to Luke or the gospel according to John, is simply the good news of the message of the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we look at today is the message and the method of the early church because what they did, we need to do. How they thought, how they interacted with the world is how we need to think and how we need to interact with the world. And so uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapters 1, 2, 8, and 17 pretty much. We may vary in some places, but that's okay. You're good at keeping up. Look at their message. It was the cross and the empty tomb. Go to chapter 1 and verse 3. To these, he's talking about the disciples there, he also presented himself alive. Now, this is referring to Jesus, that Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. It means that Jesus appeared himself by many convincing proofs of who he was, who he is, and who he will always be, the I am. And so he revealed himself to them. He appeared to these disciples and to others we know from Scripture with this visible, undeniable proof, a sure sign of indisputable evidence that Christ had been risen from the grave. Drop to chapter 2 in verse 23. Peter is preaching now. The Spirit has come. And Peter is preaching to a crowd of people that have gathered to see what's all this commotion about? What's all this movement about? In chapter 2 in verse 23, Peter says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you just stop right there, it means that this did not catch God by surprise. That this was in the plan and design of God. That he had designed it, that, that Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstances. It was by the predetermined plan of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. So Peter says, you nailed him to the cross, but God raised him. You made a decision about him, but God overruled it. You said, we'll kill him. God said, I'll raise him. 
And so Peter says, you nailed him to the cross. What he says is that the religious leaders of that time conspired with the Romans to put Jesus to death. He was a threat. He was a threat to the religious establishment because if they embraced Christ for who he was, then there would be no need for the sacrificial system. There would need, be no need for the rituals because there would be a personal relationship. He was a threat to the Romans because he claimed to be the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and so because of that, he was a threat to everybody. And so Peter charges them to their face with this crime. Now you have to remember who's doing this. This is a man who days before out of fear had denied Christ three times. And now he is standing before the very people that were responsible for putting Jesus to death and saying, you have put him to death. And you turned him over to the hands of godless men. The word means those who are outside the law. He's referring to the Romans there. And so what Peter is saying here is that there was a collusion between godless Romans and religious leaders to put Jesus to death. But God raised him up again, verse 24. This is the first public pronouncement to people who were not believers in Jesus that he was in fact God. And so what Peter is doing here is he's talking to people who have rejected the message of Jesus, they've rejected the miracles of Jesus, and they have rejected that he was the Messiah of God, and now he puts a proposal before them. In light of the fact that you have rejected his message, his ministry, and that he is Messiah and miracles, are you now too going to reject the fact of the resurrection? Are you going to reject the proof that is before you? And you cannot read the prophecies, nor could any of those leaders at that time have read the prophecies of the Old Testament without understanding that the Messiah was going to die and that he would rise. And so this resurrection of Jesus was God's approval on his son. And it reminds us of some things. It reminds us that religion cannot get us to heaven. It reminds us that good works can't get us to heaven because the people at the time of Jesus were very religious and did very many good works, but those could not get them to heaven. It reminds us that the Pharisees, as religious as they were, had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, as religious as they were, when God stood in front of them, they could not recognize him. And it's also a reminder that we have an opportunity this day and every day to tell people that Jesus is alive. Now, what you have here is an undeniable event. It's an open and shut case. There was nobody that would refute at the time of Jesus, at the time that Peter spoke these words, nobody refuted that Jesus had risen from the dead. There was nobody in that crowd. Luke says that when he wrote the book of Luke and Acts that he looked for witnesses. There was nobody in that crowd that raised their hand and said, uh, 
excuse me, uh, Simon Peter, you're just a fisherman from Galilee, and uh, there's no evidence that Jesus rose. Everybody in Jerusalem knew the tomb was empty. Everyone knew. It was irrefutable. The Romans and Herod and others had tried to cover up that fact, but it was an established known fact. And all Peter is doing saying, in light of the facts, will you believe? Now, just look at it in your notes. His tomb was guarded, but it was empty. Luke 24, the guards testified to his resurrection. The people that were sent there to guard and make sure that his body didn't disappear testified his body was gone. He appeared before Saul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9. He appeared to Stephen at his martyrdom, Acts 7. And he appeared to the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. In the New Testament, there are at least 11 specific appearances of Christ at different times as the resurrected Lord. This was an undeniable fact. And so he's the crucified Christ, but he is also the risen Christ. Now, to give that message to people, you need more than a good idea. You need the power of the Holy Spirit because it's not about my opinion or your opinion or anybody's opinion. It's about a fact, but a fact needs power behind it to be communicated. And so the Holy Spirit came on the disciples and the power of the Holy Spirit kept them not just enthusiastic, but kept them motivated and empowered to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, enthusiasm can wane. You know, you can be up and excited at a ball game, and then by the time you get to the car and you see the traffic in front of you, you're depressed. Enthusiasm can wane, but power from God does not wane. It does not run out. And so God gave them power, not just the message, but the power to communicate it. And the same Spirit of God that lived inside those disciples lives inside of us to give us the power to communicate it. Now, we know from studying the Bible and from studying society and world and the world that there's always been opposition to this message. There's political opposition, there can be military opposition, there can be persecution, there can be social opposition, and opposition from neighbors or work associates can be opposed to the message. That doesn't change the fact that it's true. I mean, the world does not want this message for one simple reason, because it means that the world is wrong and God is right. And that the world needs to come into an understanding that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Not based on what we do, not based on being baptized, not based on good works, but on the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit came to give us the power to share the gospel with people wherever we are and whoever we meet. That's our standard. That's our goal. This was not an assignment just for the apostles. This is not an assignment just for pastors. It's not an assignment just for missionaries. It is an assignment for each of us. Why? Because of the return of Christ. 
Christ's ascension is a guarantee that he's going to return. He, he tells us that. One of the teachings of the early church was that Christ would return. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know that Christ will return. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Jesus has ascended. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So here we have angels announcing that Jesus is coming back. Now they've announced his birth in Matthew 1.20. They've announced his resurrection in Mark 16. And now they're announcing his second coming. So the first coming is an assurance of the second coming. The ascension is an assurance that he's coming back. Look at these words from Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So let's just talk about what Jesus says right here in the Gospels. Look at the first illustration he gives in Matthew 24. He gives the illustration of you don't know the day of his coming. Now that goes back to Noah. Didn't know, Noah knew that judgment was coming. And so he's built an ark. But he didn't know what day it was coming. He just knew that it was coming. And it was delayed for 120 years. He, he didn't know, but he knew. He didn't know when, but he knew what. That, that there was going to be judgment. So Jesus says, Noah didn't know the day. You don't know the day. A, a homeowner doesn't know the hour. But if you knew the hour, you would get ready for it, right? Amen. I mean, if you knew somebody was coming to break into your house, you'd get ready for it right? I mean, you wouldn't just say, oh, well, you just, well, I just guess they're going to steal everything we got. Sure wish I could do something about that. I mean, if you knew the hour, you'd set your alarm. You'd probably go make sure the shotgun's cleaned out and you'd call the police department. So you may see somebody in the yard in just a few minutes. You would do something about it. Jesus says, if you knew when the hour was coming, you would do something about it. We don't know the hour, but we know that the thief is coming. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so Jesus says, you need to warn people. You need to warn people that there's a day coming. There's a judgment coming. There's a thief coming. He's trying to destroy people's lives. And you need to be ready because judgment is coming. It may not look like it's going to happen today. But it is going to happen. Judgment is going to come. Then you come to the book of Acts. So when Jesus has talked about it, now they're talking about it. After the resurrection, they're talking about his coming. And, and so these angels appear to these disciples and says, guys, get busy. Go to work. Do what Jesus told you to do. Do what he trained you to do for those three years. Share the gospel, fulfill the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do what he called you to do. You've got a job to do. 
He will return in the same way that you've watched him ascend. What does that mean? It means it's going to be personal. Jesus, it's not just some form is coming, some ghost is coming, some cloud is coming. It means that Jesus is coming. It's going to be personal. And secondly, it means it's undeniable. There's going to be no denying that he has come back. The Bible tells us there's going to come a day when Jesus will descend and he'll take his church into the air. Listen, when hundreds of millions of people disappear in an instant, it's going to be undeniable. There is no fake news and no spin that's going to be able to figure that out. Because pilots are going to disappear out of airplanes. People are going to disappear out of their jobs. People are going to be in factory lines. And they're going to be working. And all of a sudden, people next to them that have tried to share the gospel with them and they've rejected are going to disappear. And they're going to go, what happened? A husband who's rejected the witness of his wife, his wife is going to disappear and he's going to wonder what happened. Children that have been believing in the Lord and their parents have and their children are going to disappear and they're going to wonder what happened. It's going to be undeniable when Jesus comes back that he has taken his church to himself. Nobody's going to be able to explain it until they get their Bibles out and find out that Jesus told us this was going to happen 2,000 years ago. And so the Bible tells us that we are to warn people, not threaten people, but to warn people that there is a coming day of judgment, either in the second coming of Christ or in death. What was their method? Well, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Their method was personal evangelism. I, as I was studying this series, I, I was looking through the book of Acts, and very seldom is there a mention of a great crusade. There, there's just not a lot of mentions. You know, they, they brought in an evangelist, and, and he shared, and they got everybody ready, and there was this great crusade. Mostly, it was one-on-one -on -one evangelism. Look at the scriptures that they preached, Acts 17 and verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, as he would go out on these missionary journeys, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. So what did Paul do? Look at what he did. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul didn't say, you know, I got this really cool tool that I use. I, let, me, let me show you this little booklet I wrote. He reasoned to them from the scriptures. Now, there's nothing wrong with a gospel tract. There's nothing wrong with using a tool. But the reasoning of the gospel is from the scriptures. The power is in the word of God, not in our methods. The word of God is what convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit is who convicts of sin. And so he reasoned with them from the scriptures, and some believed. Paul stuck with the scriptures. He went to the scriptures and said, see that verse right there? That refers to Messiah. You know who Messiah is? Messiah is Jesus. He, he reasoned, he logically explained to them who Jesus was and what he had done. So the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, reveals Jesus either 
about to come here, gone, coming back in some form or another, it reveals Jesus to us, who he is, what he did, why he came. And the result was some of them were persuaded. Now he's referring here to some Jews that were in this particular city and they joined, and he says, and they joined Paul and Silas. In other words, that, that word means they cast their lot with Paul and Silas. They said, that's where our money is. That's where we're going to stake our lives. We're going to put ourselves in the same camp with Paul and Silas. We're going to believe what they believe. And, and even more Greeks got involved and came to Christ and they followed Christ. But look what happens in verse 5, chapter 17. In verse 5, but the Jews, becoming jealous, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, taking along some wicked men. Now, this is one of those things when you start studying a particular verse, you learn something and discover something that you didn't see the first time or the second time or the third time or the 30th time. Okay, so look at verse 5 taking along some wicked men. That word wicked there means, actually means worthless. Taking along some worthless men, uh, the word, if you translate it out, means loungers in the marketplace. In other words, people that had nothing else to do, but you could pay them and stir up a mob to start an uproar still happens today. Sometimes you see marches in our cities and you say, man, there's 10,000 people in that march. 9,900 of them don't even believe what they're marching about, but they're loungers in the marketplace. And somebody walks by and says, I'll give you $10 if you'll carry this sign. Well, I need to eat today, so I'll take it. Take $10, they'll carry a sign and they'll march like they really believe something. It's happening 2,000 years ago. It's still happening today. So the Jews got upset. So what they did? Well, there wasn't enough of them to cause an uproar in the city. And so they went out and got loungers in the marketplace, people with nothing else to do, and got them stirred up. And they said, hey, nothing like a good uproar. Let's go get involved in this. And they started an uproar in a city. It happens all the time. So it's not wicked men, it's worthless loungers in the marketplace. And who does that stir up? It stirs up people that don't want truth. So, but Paul stands on the scripture and he shares the gospel and there's opposition. There will always be opposition to truth because truth means that I need to correct myself. That I need to align myself with something that I'm out of alignment that I'm not where I need to be, doing what I need to be doing, because the enemies of Christ are insecure. And so they'll stir up people, and they'll get people organized, and they'll confuse people, and they'll assault leaders. But turn back to Acts chapter 4. This is how we're supposed to respond to opposition. Remember Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are told to be quiet. Stop sharing this message. Stop talking about Jesus. We, we command you, don't do this anymore. Acts chapter 4 and verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen 
and heard. Now, Charles W. Carter says the entire outline of the book of Acts is evangelistic. The witness in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 7, the witness in transition, that's when the gospel is moving to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's Acts chapter 8 through 12. And then the witness in all the world, Acts chapter 13 through 28, the gospel was taken to the known world by Paul and by others who took it all the way we know as far as Ethiopia and as far as Rome and into Spain. The principal characters of the New Testament were all evangelistic. Now, when you look at those disciples, that was a hodgepodge of guys like you've never seen before. There's no way that group would have hung out together. There were fishermen, there were zealots, there were tax collectors. I mean, they're all kind of guys, but they all had one thing in common. They all went out to share the gospel. You read the book of Acts. Every leading character in the book of Acts is a gospel-sharing person. Whether it is Peter or Paul or the deacon Stephen or Philip or Barnabas, they shared the gospel, and they didn't limit it just to their neighborhood or to their city or to their race or to their region or to their country. Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 1 and verse 8, said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul says to the Roman church, Your faith is known everywhere. The whole world knows about the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So what does the gospel do? It starts conversations. It starts conversations. There is power in proclamation. There is power in proclaiming the truth, not your truth, not your idea of truth, but God's truth. There is power in that. And so when we follow the directions, when we stay on script, when we stay with the scriptures and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the same message that Peter and Paul and Stephen and all the other characters of the New Testament have. We have that same message. And we have that same responsibility. Now in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, I want you to just turn there for a minute. Because I want you to see a word I think that could be better translated than it is in a lot of our translations. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. It says they went everywhere preaching the word. Now, let me tell you that that word preaching there is a little more accurately translated sharing or speaking they went everywhere sharing or speaking preaching is just proclamation they went everywhere speaking gospelizing having conversations with people you see this is how the gospel spreads the gospel spreads when on monday and tuesday and wednesday and thursday and friday and saturday wherever we are we look for opportunities for gospel conversations 
We look for ways to tell people that Jesus is the hope of the world. We look for ways to tell people the difference that Christ has made in our lives. That's what they were doing. They went everywhere speaking about Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ. Now this is a different word, translated the same way, but it's a different word. This word is the word of someone who is a herald or an announcer for a decision. So what Philip did, he's in Samaria preaching. He gets called to go witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he is preaching Christ, which means to call for a response. So not only are we to have conversations, we're to ask people to do something about it. We're not just to say, hey, I just want you to know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We're not just to say, hey, Jesus loves you and so do I. We're to call for a decision. We're to proclaim with a purpose. We're to call for people to decide what to do about this Jesus. And so he proclaims for conviction that leads to conversions. So look at Acts chapter 11. I'm going to give you another one. Acts 11 and verse 19. Acts 11 and verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So at first, they're just talking to other Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, in verse 20, speaking means talking. <laughs> okay? They just talked about Jesus. Speaking just means talking. They talked about Jesus. But preaching is a proclamation for a decision. So they're talking about Jesus, and then they're saying, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do with this truth? What are you going to do with this fact? What are you going to do with this person, Jesus Christ? Now, at this time, persecution is beginning to rise. It could cost you your life to, to share the gospel with somebody. And so they are speaking about Jesus unapologetically, but they're also asking people to make decisions about Christ. Hmm. I think we're supposed to do that. I think I'm supposed to do that. I think you're supposed to do that. See, it's not the preacher and the missionary's job to, to share with lost people that they need Jesus. It's every Christian's job to share with lost people that they need Jesus. It's God's job to save the lost. It's our job to be voices so that people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And let me give you this real quick. All right, what does the Holy Spirit did for them? He does for us. Let me give you these real quick. First of all, he made Jesus real to them. He made Jesus real to them. Secondly, he revealed the word for them. He gave them the scriptures, insight into the scriptures. Thirdly, he empowered them for service. He didn't just make Jesus real. He didn't just reveal the word. He gave them power to go out and serve and to do what God called him to do. 
he encouraged and comforted them in times of persecution. He encouraged and comforted them in times of persecution. And then he gave them boldness and joy in their witness. He gave them boldness and joy in their witness. So let me ask you a question. Who do you know that needs that message this week? Or maybe you need that message this week. So I'd ask you a question. Are you alive? Are you? Why? Why has God left you here? I mean, if it was just to get saved and to go to heaven, then he should have just saved us and taken us to heaven. Why are you alive? Why am I alive? We're alive to tell somebody what Jesus did for us. And you may be here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And you've never had that life-changing encounter with him. You, you may be religious, you may have been baptized, you may have joined a church, but you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You've never trusted him to change your life. You see, to do that, you have to recognize that you're a sinner. And a sinner can't save themselves. And, and our good works won't outweigh our bad works, and then that gets us in. That's not, it's by grace that you are saved. Not of works, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, if I get saved because of good works, and I got more good works than you, then I can brag to you that I'm better than you. But at the cross, the ground is level. And all the good works in the world can't get me into heaven. So the only way I can get there is by the grace of God. The only way I can get there is to know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the only way I can be saved is to come to Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. To admit my need. To admit that I'm a sinner. To admit that I need to change. That Christ wants to change my life and make me into a new person. Into a new creation. That old things will pass away and all things will become new. So here's the invitation this morning. If you don't know Jesus, then I want to invite you when we stand in just a moment to just step out from where you are, find one of our men here at the end of the aisle and just say, I need to give my life to Jesus Christ today. I need to trust him. You may not even fully understand everything that that means, but I need to trust him today. And if you need to do that, then I'm going to ask you to step out and do that during this time of invitation. Secondly, if you know somebody that needs Jesus and they're on your heart, maybe you want to not stand, maybe you want to turn around and use that seat you're in as, a, as an altar and just call out their name before the Lord or come here and at these prayer altars and just pray for those that you love and care for that are lost. If they die today, they will die without Christ. And all the preachers in the world can't get them into heaven if they don't know Christ. And all the good works that they did can't get them into heaven if they don't know Christ. And so maybe you just need to come and just pray for them and say, Lord, use me as a speaker, as a conversationalist to start a conversation with people about Jesus. Maybe you were saved yesterday at the Hope Plant. Maybe you need to make that public today. Whatever it is you need to do in relation to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want us to stand.
you step out and you do it right now.